it is uh, an absolute uh, joy um, to have uh, Michael here with us um, today. And um, uh, I'm going to kind of stick to my notes because I don't want to go too long. Uh, I've known Mike for quite a few years, uh, and, uh, um, and he is, is this working by the way? Can you hear me? Okay, okay. And he is, um, uh, and I was, he was very gracious in offering to be with us uh, today. Um, and I tell you, what he's going to share with you is incredibly, even more and more so important than, than and, and valuable and impacting than it might have been a, a year or two ago because of everything that's happening in our nation. Uh, both politically, religiously, um, personally. And uh, so um, uh, you are in for a special treat. I've heard him speak several times uh, in various uh, locations, uh, National Conference Ministry for the Armed Forces. Um, he has been there, he's been involved with Thomas Alliance uh, and others. You may have actually seen him on uh, TV uh, as well, um, uh, he, he's not, an, not only an enjoyable speaker, but has an incredible wisdom, um, considerable experience uh, in the area of religious support and religious liberty and, and, uh, and protecting the free exercise. Uh, so it's just, it's, it's important to note that. Uh, he's general counsel for First Liberty Institute. He joined First Liberty back in 2013, right? 2013. Uh, and he served seven years on active duty uh, as an attorney with the U.S. Marine Corps. So, um, so once a Marine, always a Marine, right? Hooah, yeah, hoorah. And, uh, and in fact, one of the guys that was supposed to be here today, but then uh, his wife um, came down with some, some situations, wasn't able to, to come, he is Marine Colonel retired, and he was looking for, and he was gonna wear his uniform and everything as well, so it was, it was cool. So um, anyway, among Mr. Berry's numerous positions within the Marine Corps, he deployed to Afghanistan in 2008. And from 2009 to 2012, Mike served as, as adjunct professor of law at the United States Naval Academy. Um, he continues to proudly serve our nation as a member of the Marine Corps Reserve. And, uh, and as general counsel for First Liberty Institute, uh, Mike is responsible for leading all aspects of First Liberty's uh, legal operations. Uh, he's a recognized subject matter expert, um, so that's good. You can pick his brain big time. Uh, he has testified for Congress, uh, which in itself is an interesting experience, <laughs> I am sure. Uh, and he is routinely invited to speak across the nation um, at uh, Chaplain's Workshop, no, at, uh, about religious freedom. Mike has also been featured hundreds of times in, in various national media outlets, so uh, quite a bit of uh, experience this man has. Uh, he earned his bachelor's degree from Texas A&M University. I won't hold that against him since I'm a Colorado boy. Um, and he earned his uh, law degree uh, from o Ohio State? The. the Ohio State University. <laughs> the Ohio State University. Um, today, uh, he's gonna speak on the legal challenges for chaplains, for ministers, for churches uh, in today's perplexing world. And it is, would everyone say amen that this is a very perplexing world right now? Amen. Yeah providing some great insight and tools and ways ahead, along with a, a stimulating question and answer time, I am sure. Um, anyway, Mike, uh, it's, it is truly a pleasure uh, to have you um, here with us. It's an honor. And so uh, um, we're going to, uh, I need to switch 
the little microphone thing to him, but why don't you show your appreciation uh, as he comes up. All right, well, a couple of admin items. First, thank you for that introduction, Mark. I feel like I need to start wearing one of those little uh, red uh, as seen on TV stickers, maybe. <laughs> so, um, and uh, uh, second, I have my phone and I'm using it, but I promise you it's because that's where all my notes are and it's on airplane mode. So, so oh, that way, cool. so I, I, I so that, well, I'm, I wasn't saying it for that reason. I was, uh, it's just so that if anybody emails or texts or whatever, it, it won't, you know, uh, uh, interrupt my notes. Um, so, uh, a couple other things. Um, so, I recognize that I'm here at a, 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 a GA stands for General Assembly, right? So, a couple of disclaimers. Um, please don't hold, these are my three strikes. Uh, one, I am not Presbyterian, so that's strike one against me. So you are welcome to disagree with anything I say theologically. Um, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm very comfortable with my own uh, you know, faith and theology, so, and, and I'm wel I welcome any uh, disagreement or challenges to it. Uh, I have no problem with that. Two, uh, I am not a chaplain or uh, ordained, so that's strike two against me. And strike three, and probably the one that gets me out, is uh, I am an attorney. So, um, um, yeah. But uh, that's you know that's where I am. Um, let me make sure that. Okay. Yeah, that's where I'm supposed to be. I even have to have little notes on here saying next slide, so that I know when I'm a marine, right? If if it doesn't have uh, you know color by numbers, I'm I'm lost. Uh, any, any book that doesn't have pictures, and I'll, I'll probably put it down and stop reading. So, um, so I, you know, Mark gave my background uh, a little bit more uh, about myself, you know, because um, people always ask. Uh, oh, one other thing, too. I'm, I'm keeping an eye on the clock. Here's the thing. In the Marine Corps, they always said, don't ever be the guy standing between, you know, uh, the Marines and their chow. So I will do my best to catch us up. And the reason is not because I don't want to make sure you get all the content that you can. I, I will certainly do that. But I've never spoken for three hours before. I mean, that, that's probably the, that was the most daunting aspect of this at all. It's like three hours of talking. So I was like, can we do an hour of Q&A? You know, so uh, we're not going to do an hour of Q&A. But um, I will certainly build in plenty of time for Q&A because that's my favorite part. Uh, I feel like I, I hear my own thoughts all the time. I want to hear other people's thoughts, right? I want to hear um, what what they're facing, what they're, what's challenging them, and see if maybe I can provide some some uh, help and insight. So I will try to get us out uh, on time for Chow. Um, but a little bit more about me. Um, so yeah, I served on active duty for about uh, just under eight years. Uh, all my time was spent on the East Coast. Uh, I did get to deploy to Afghanistan. Uh, I deployed as an attorney, but I was the only attorney out of uh, 1,200 Marines and sailors who went, uh, we went over uh, as a battalion landing team. So if you're familiar with how the Navy Marine Corps structure works, that's, uh, we went over there. Um, uh, I, I was with a, a combat unit, and I was the, you know, literally the only attorney with my unit, which was uh, a lot of fun, but also a, a lot of challenge. The day I arrived in Afghanistan, 
Uh, I was one of the, uh, we call them sticks. You, you fly over in sticks. Uh, I don't know why they call it that. It's just I was on, I can't remember, stick seven or something like that. So I, I land in Afghanistan. Uh, most of the, the uh, headquarters element had already been there. They'd sort of already got, you know, hit the ground running. So I think it was maybe 02 or 03 in the morning. Um, and a guy arrives at the flight line, comes over to me, introduces himself, and says, are you the, are you the JAG? And I said, yes. And he said, the CO wants to meet you uh, in, his, uh, in the, what's called the COC, which is the Command Operations Center. I said, all right. Uh, I head right immediately over there. And I walk in, and the commanding officer uh, introduces himself to me. We had literally, literally never met in person before. Just It was a long story about how that, how that whole thing happened. I was supposed to go to Iraq, and I got diverted at the last minute to go to Afghanistan. And uh, that's very typical of the Marine Corps. Uh, those six months of Arabic lessons really came in handy. Uh, uh, they don't speak Arabic in Afghanistan, if you didn't know. So, um, yeah, Pashto, Dari. Um, so, I arrive in the command operations center, and the CEO introduces himself to me. I introduce myself to him, and he says, "Come in uh, to my, you know, to like, his private area of the COC." And he pulls me close, and he says, uh, "Mike, do you know what your job is for the next ten months?" And I looked at him, and I said, "Whatever you tell me to do, sir." I felt like Forrest Gump, right? You know, what, what's your what's your mission, Private Gump? You know, to do whatever you tell me to do, Drill Sergeant. You know. Um, and he said, nope, your job is to keep me out of jail. Um, and I said, Roger, that's your No pressure, right? So uh, that was, uh, the good news is, is that, that, that at the time he was a lieutenant colonel. He is now a, uh, he's been recently promoted to one-star general. So uh, maybe if I had small, well, some small part to play in ensuring that he made it up the chain, then, then I, I, I did my duty. So that's a, you know, one of my little Marine Corps stories. I, I left the Marine Corps in 2013, as Mark said. Uh, I fully intended to stay in for 20 years. I thought I was going to be one of those, you know, I was a sunshine pumper. I was, you know, a, a, a motivator, as they say, in the Marine Corps. I loved service. Uh, I was a 9-11 joiner. I, I, I joined right after 9-11. I had lost my job. Uh, I was miserable. I was looking for a, a, another job. And I kept looking in the same career field that I was in, which I hated, and I was miserable. And I thought, and my finally, my wife looked at me, because we were, we were newlyweds. We were called uh, what they call dinks, right? Dual income, no kids. So we had nothing tying us down. No mortgage, no kids, nothing. And she said, why are you looking in the same place that you hated? She was like, why would you go back to that? Um, and I said, that's a great point. She said, well, you know, what? I was pretty young at the time. I was 22, 23 years old, and she said, what do you want to do? You've got your whole life ahead of you. What do you want to do? And I said, I've always wanted to serve. And I said, and after what just happened, right, because 9-11 had just happened, I said, I'm, you know, I feel like I, sh I, sh I need to serve. And she said, then do it. You know, what's, what's holding you back? And I just said, I, are you okay with that? She said, yeah, you know, of course. I'll follow you. You know, that's, I mean, we were newlyweds, you know, so you know how it is. <laughs> you, know, all, you know, remember our vows? And just, so, um, so I, I, uh, uh, I see we have other branches represented here, so I won't get into uh, what the conversations were like with the various recruiters uh, and then why I decided on the Marine Corps. Um, uh, uh, that's an interesting story in and of itself, but I ended up deciding on the Marine Corps as the branch I wanted to join. And um, 
So that's that's what led me to serve, uh, and I, you know, I just I, I took to it like a like a duck to water. I just thought this is what I'm supposed to do, and I want to do this for the next 20 years. Um, and then in 2013, I got a call from. At the time, we were known as Liberty Institute. We, we changed our name in 2015 to First Liberty Institute. But, um, and it was an opportunity to go home to Texas to plant some, because we had, by this point, we had um, four kids. Um, so fast forward, you know, eight, eight years later, we had four kids. Um, if you've ever met anybody from Texas, uh, you'll find that they're always trying to get back to Texas, usually. <laughs> So uh, that was the case with me. I, I you know, wanted to get back home because there are no Marine Corps bases in Texas, right? Um, uh, we have a coast, but for whatever reason, they decided not to put any Marine Corps, any amphibious bases there. Um, they have a Naval Air Station down in Corpus Christi. That's as close as we're going to get. So um, it was an opportunity that I couldn't pass up. And so that's what led us back home. So since I've been with First Liberty, when I, or when I joined First Liberty, this is kind of the interesting part. I was, I was just hired as a, as a staff attorney. Uh, they, they thought my military background was like, oh, that's kind of cool, you know, okay, good. You know, he's probably disciplined, you know, probably knows how to put on a, a suit and tie properly, blah, blah, blah. And, um, but they, they hired me to be a staff attorney uh, just to do our, our normal cases. And that was in 2013. In 2014, um, uh, I didn't know this at the time, but apparently a group of all the, the leaders of all the big, uh, you know, conservative legal organizations around the country, many of which you guys have probably heard of, but they got together and they, and they, and they noticed that there is this disturbing trend of uh, increasing hostility to religious freedom in the, in the military in particular. And they were all kind of sitting there, all these, you know, sort of the, the um, you know, I call it kind of like UN, right? The United Nations. You have all these heads of all these these, these major, you know, conservative policy and and, and uh, legal organizations, and they said, "Man, you know, if only we knew, if only any any of our groups had somebody who had like a background in the law and was passionate about constitutional rights, but also had a background in the military, and so they understood how the military worked, you know." And our president and CEO, Kelly Shackelford, was just kind of sitting there like. I think we just hired that guy, you know? And so they asked me to start a, uh, uh, what we refer to as our, our military pillar. Um, and, and you'll see what I mean in a minute when I call it our, our pillar. But that's what really led me on, on this journey of focusing, uh, not exclusively, but really focusing a lot of my time and, and attention on religious liberty in the military. Uh, a lot of it because of my background, because of a lot of the unique experiences I got as an attorney in the Marine Corps, and then obviously combine that with what First Liberty does, and um, and and it was kind of a, a match made in heaven, and or uh, really it was providential. Um, so, so that's a little bit about my journey. Um, more about First Liberty Institute. We are the largest legal organization in the country uh, that's dedicated exclusively to defending religious freedom. So all we do is religious freedom cases. Uh, people say, well, does that, you know, do you, do you do free speech cases? Yes, if there's a religious liberty component. Do you do pro-life cases? Yes, if there's a religious liberty component to it, right? So, because um, there's obviously overlap in those issues, but it has to have a religious liberty uh, issue uh, for us to be able to take it on. Uh, we're a nonprofit. 
Uh, we're a 501c3 tax-exempt organization, so everything we do is free of charge. None of our clients ever receive a bill from us. And people ask, well, how do you do that? Well, because there are, are millions of Americans who care about religious freedom, and they generously and graciously donate to us. And that's what keeps our, you know, our lights on and our AC running in the summer. Um, and that's what allows us to be able to uh, provide legal representation uh, free of charge. Oh, and then one other thing too. So um, if you're interested in learning more about First Liberty, I brought a couple of stuff uh, of, um, you know, uh, pocket guides and, and, and handouts uh, that are over on the table. But the easier way, this is what our team keeps telling me, they're like, Mike, you need to come into the 21st century. See, apparently I'm, I'm an old guy now because we have a lot of young people that work at First Liberty, especially kind of in our creative side, our, uh, like the marketing and graphic design. And they love to give me a hard time about being an old timer now. Uh, I still, like my, if my wife were here, she would say, no, no, he is, he is not, an, he's not mature at all. He's still very immature. Um, and my kids would probably agree that I'm trying my best to keep up. I have four teenagers now. Um, so, uh, but all the young people tell me, you can't hand out, nobody does paper stuff anymore. Nobody hands out like bro brochures and pamphlets. Everything is now digital. Like, okay, so what do I do? And they said, just tell them to text the word liberty to 474747 and, and, and they'll automatically get the stuff digitally. So, um, so there you go. So text the word liberty to 474747 and apparently everything I brought over here and more, uh, it will magically appear via PDF as my, is, is, is my understanding. So, um, so that's a little bit about me. That's a little bit about First Liberty. I mentioned our pillars, right? Uh, that, that we have our, our work uh, broken down. Let me make sure everybody can see. Broken down into four pillars. So this is really our battlefield. This is where we operate. Um, in the public arena, in, uh, in our places of worship, in our schools, and in our military. So in the public arena, what does that mean? We talk about um, the right to, to freely express yourself and your religious beliefs uh, in public. So that could be, uh, we actually rep we represent a, a justice of the peace in Texas who uh, wants to be able to open his sessions of court with a very brief invocation, right? And he's been sued for doing that. So that would be a public arena case, right? The ability to, uh, to uh, express your religious beliefs or even have something as, as simple as a, a, a brief invocation before you open court in public. Uh, uh, public displays re religious content. We won a landmark case at the US Supreme Court in 2019 uh, defending a World War I Veterans Memorial just outside of Washington, D.C. It's called the Bladensburg World War I Veterans Memorial. It was put there uh, partially funded by uh, donations given from uh, 49 women from Prince George's County, Maryland, whose sons had been killed serving in World War I. And they, they donated out of their pocket to be able to construct this uh, Veterans Memorial. Uh, as, if you know your history, you know that uh, during World War I, uh, times were pretty different, and we didn't have the ability to repatriate the remains of our fallen service members the way that we do today, right, when we, we see them coming off of the plains at, at, at Dover. Um, 
Uh, back then, we often left our, our war dead overseas in overseas uh, uh, military cemeteries. And so these women, for many of them, this Veterans Memorial really was the representation of their son's gravestone, right? That, because it had the names of those 49 men who were killed serving a World War I engraved on that memorial. Um, but a, uh, a, an atheist organization or an anti-religion organization called the American Humanist Association decided that because it was in the shape of a cross and because it happened to be on government property that it violated the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment to the Constitution and they sued. Um, and this case went on. And, and so we ended up representing the American Legion. And you say, well, wait a minute. Why do you represent the American Legion? I thought it was put there by, well, I said it was partially funded by uh, those mothers, but it was also uh, helped, uh, it was partially funded by the American Legion, and it was put on American Legion property. Um, and uh, well, then the next question people say is, wait, didn't you just say that it was on government property and that's why it got sued? Uh, that's correct. It was originally erected on American Legion property. How did it end up on government property? This thing that, um, has anybody ever heard of the, this term eminent domain? Mm -hmm. Right? So what is that? What's when the government comes and takes your property and says we need this? So why did the government need the property? Because during the 40s and 50s when Washington DC and the, the, the sort of the DC industrial complex was expanding rapidly, the government needed more, more uh, space for, to make room for highways for all the traffic that was coming and going from D.C. So they took this property from the American Legion, right? So, so think about that. It's put there with private donations uh, on private property, right? The American Legion is not the government. It's a private organization. The government comes in and says, we need your land because we have to make room for more highways. The government takes the property, and then 50 years later, an organization says, oh, look at that, it's on government property. The government must be establishing a state religion, right? So uh, it doesn't get much more preposterous than that for you know, somebody to argue that um, the government, clearly the government was trying to establish a religion when it took this land, right, to, to make room for highway expansion. That was, that was the government's intent. But nevertheless, that was the argument the American Humanist Association made. And uh, it went to the U.S. Supreme Court in 2019, and thankfully, uh, uh, we won, 7-2. So that, mo that memorial still stands today, and it will hopefully for generations to come. Um, so that's the, uh, is this a laser pointer? Is it, yes. Is that? Okay, so that's the public displays with religious content. And then marketplace expression, you know, this is kind of, you kind of see it uh, uh, cordoned off there in the bottom left corner. Uh, I'm telling you today that this issue is about to become, probably blow up and become probably the biggest flashpoint now. We're starting, you can't, I just saw it this morning, uh, an article about how woke, woke corporations and woke executive boards of, of large corporations are trying to take over the country essentially and drive us off, off the cliff. Um, that is about to become a m massive, massive area of, uh, of of battle for religious freedom. Uh, You've never heard the term woke. Okay, see, so I'm not the 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 out of touch guy. All right, so thank you. Um, uh, uh, I'm going to go back to the office and report back. I used a term that somebody didn't know. So okay, uh, woke. Is, is the term that most people uh, nowadays use to refer to um, 
Short, what we used to call political correctness back in the day, right? Um, they, we used to call it political correctness. Now it's called woke. I think it's a play on the word awake, as if like, oh, my eyes have been opened and I'm awake and I'm aware of all the social injustice around me. The problem is the term, you know, when we talk about social justice and social injustice, we recognize that absolutely there are injustices uh, around the world, right? They're not unique to America or to our community, but that, that term social justice and the term woke has been hijacked and co-opted to really mean um, basically what the far left is, is pushing as its agenda. So typically when somebody refers to woke, they're, t they're referring to the far left agenda. Um, and, and corporate America, which used to be sort of known as one of, along with the military, the last bastions of sort of capitalism and conservative I ideas, at, at least um, in theory, because uh, these corporate tycoons were really just about the bottom line and, and, and making money. And so anything that didn't help make money they didn't care about it. Um, that's all changing uh, before our eyes. Uh, they, they, they would rather lose money and, uh, and, and do what the, the far left wants them to do rather than just ignore all the, the culture issues and just focus on uh, earning profits for their shareholders. So, because when I, when I went through business school and undergrad, I remember that was, they said, the, the, the mission and purpose of any publicly traded organization is to maximize shareholder uh, uh, value, maximize shareholder profit. That's no longer the case. I mean, it's just, uh, it, that, that is no longer the mission of, of these corporations. It's now to, to push uh, whatever ideological agenda they want to push. So in our places of worship, this one, a little more common sense, right? Uh, the right to preach, the right to serve, the right to autonomy, but man, this is under attack uh, uh, constantly. Right, um, you see the rights of of churches to be able to uh, decide for themselves who their their leaders are going to be. We have a case right now that's pending at the U.S. Supreme Court where we represent the North American Mission Board. So that's the that's an arm of the Southern Baptist Convention, the Southern Baptist Church, and we represent them because they had a a, a pastor who violated their standards, their, uh, their code, and so they, they disciplined him and, and removed him. And he is now challenging that and saying that they don't have the right to do that, right? Whereas there's a, another, um, there have been other multiple cases uh, along these lines where um, uh, I, denominations that are on the more conservative side of the spectrum have uh, removed members because they violated their, their norms and their policies and their code of conduct and their standards on uh, LGBT issues, right? So uh, an example might be a, uh, a Catholic uh, institution who discovers that uh, one, of their, uh, one of their priests or one of their you know, uh, teachers, or et cetera, uh, has now identified as a, either a transgender or same-sex oriented, and they said, uh, look, you know, we're gonna have to remove you from this position. I mean, we still love you and we want what's best for you, but we can't allow you to be in this, in this position of leadership because of this. And that person is now sued um, and say, well, that violates my, you know, my rights. Um, and so the church is having to defend itself in court to say, well, wait a minute, you know, we've, we've believed and taught this for millennia. 
Um, and this person knew this when they joined the church, and they knew that these were the standards, and the person says, I don't care, it violates my rights, um, and so I'm suing you, and uh, I want you know, lots and lots of money. So, um, so defending our churches, defending our schools. Uh, boy, this is another hot, hot area for us. Uh, why? Because the far left knows, uh, when I use the term far left, I'm just using that ge very generically, right? Just sort of, I just lump everything into that category, the far left. Uh, and uh, the far left knows that if you can capture our children, then you, you can capture the next generation, right? That, that you, you have them uh, and you have the country uh, for generations to come. And I'll give you one example of something that just, uh, so um, my wife and I, we homeschool our kids. We've been very blessed and privileged to be able to do that. Um, and, but we recognize not everybody can do that. And there was a, a case out of Oregon. Of course it was Oregon, right? Um, there was a case out of Oregon that went to federal court and it was called Parents for Privacy versus the Dallas Community School District number two. Right? I don't know why, I mean it's just, Apparently, there were more than one community school districts in the enclave of Dallas, Oregon. Um, so Dallas Community School District number two, I think it was called. So Parents for Privacy was a group that organized, uh, uh, as the name entails. They, they were parents who believed that their children's privacy rights were being violated because the school district decided that they were going to allow uh, uh, students who identify as transgender to begin using whatever uh, uh, private facilities the student identified with. So if you had a, a, a young male who decided that uh, he identified as a female, then he was, the school district was going to allow him to use the, the girls' uh, bathrooms, the girls' changing rooms, etc., right? All, the intimate facilities. These parents objected, they protested, they formed an organization, and they sued. And it went to court in, the federal, in federal court, and the judge said, um, I'm get, and I'm paraphrasing, but only slightly, what the court said was, um, when parents make the decision to put their, place their kids in the public schools, they have decided to turn their kids over to the government, and their kids are now under the government's authority, and the government gets to decide what to do. Um, so, uh, and I just remember reading that, and just, you know, my jaw dropped, and I said, well, you know, first of all, because uh, my wife and I are very involved in homeschooling, we know that there are many parents out there who don't decide to place their kids in public school, right? Uh, oftentimes, they, those parents feel that they don't have a choice. What if you're a young single mother, all right, who's, who's working, um, you know, back-to-back -back jobs and, you know, and, and just you don't have the financial or other uh, means to, to logistical means to homeschool your kids? Uh, are you deciding to put your kids in public school? No. Uh, you're following the law, right, because the law says you have to put your kids in school. So, um, anyway, it was just... Uh, I, I bring that case up just again to illustrate the flashpoint that um, our schools uh, it, it really is a, another huge area. And then finally... Um, Did that resolve to a further direction? Or, uh, I don't believe so. Or if it has, I haven't, I haven't seen the decision yet. Um, so we, we were not involved in that case because it, 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 it didn't have a direct religious liberty issue. It was the, the arguments that the parents, the parent organization made was on privacy and safety grounds, which are totally legitimate arguments. It's just there was no, there was no religious liberty issue for us to get involved with. Um,
but yeah, it was a, definitely a harrowing decision and when I read that, and I just thought, oh wow, you know. Uh, and I will point out, though, that Justice Thomas uh, on the U.S. Supreme Court, Clarence Thomas, recently, um, it, he dropped it in a footnote, um, on, on a, and it wasn't a decided case. It was the court decided not to take a case, but Justice Thomas wanted to sort of make a point about the court not taking this particular case. The specifics of the case aren't important. Justice Thomas's footnote is what's noteworthy. And he said he finds it, he finds it very interesting. And, and I've, I've made this comment myself. So when he, when he put this footnote in there, I was just kind of like, you know, like, all right, you know, me and Justice Thomas, we, we're on the same, same wavelength here. Um, um, he said, I find it interesting or remarkable or fascinating how the law changes when it comes to the rights of kids. He says, so, uh, and he didn't say this, but I knew this is what he, what he meant when he said it, which was if a, you know, if a 12-year-old uh, boy suddenly identifies as a girl, well, then we all say, well, not we all, but the law or usually the government um, says, oh, well, who are we to, you know, dictate what this intelligent, independent thinking, you know, autonomous human being, 12-year-old, should, should be able to do when it comes to their body and their privacy rights and, and, and control, controlling their own destiny? Ah, but then if you ask for a, uh, you know, uh, your local youth pastor to come into the school and have lunch with that 12-year-old and pray with them, what do we say? Oh, oh, this impressionable, you know, just, you know, piece of putty 12-year-old who would just be, they would be devastated by the coercive effects of religion and prayer and somebody sitting next to them and trying to just force feed religion into their young impressionable brain, we can't allow that, you know? And so, uh, and that's basically what Justice Thomas was getting at is, you know, when it comes to uh, LGBT ideology, we, we, we basically declare that they're independent, um, fully grown and mature adults capable of making decisions for themselves. But if it involves religion, they are highly impressionable, must be protected at all costs, got to keep them free from the coercive effects of religion. We can't allow that to indoctrinate them. And so it's just like, what, you know, why is it one and, and, and not the other? Um, so, uh, so this is our battlefield. And then at the bottom here, you can see this is really uh, sort of how we, how we get involved. We're a litigation firm, so that is really our core. I probably should have put that one in the middle um, in our courts. That, I mean, we are a litigation firm. We exist to, to fight and win court cases, all right? But we also get involved in legislation. We're not, we don't have a lobbying uh, a component. We don't have any C4, uh, but, so people say, well, how do you get involved in legislation? Because we have a lot of great relationships with members of Congress and state legislators who want to pass bills or want to vote on bills. They don't have the time or the bandwidth to look at every single bill and deter and they don't have the subject matter expertise to know how is this going to affect religious liberty, right? Is this good for religious liberty or bad religious for religious liberty? And they turn to us and they say, um, uh, what would the effect of this be? And then we also uh, have a very robust media component. I was only, you know, joking earlier when I said the as seen on TV thing, but um, uh, only a little bit. We have our own, we have our own TV studio. We have our own, um, uh, gosh, we've got so, a, a lot of different uh, media enterprises, I would say, 
because we realize that's the way that people engage and interact uh, very much in, in, in the world today, right? Is they, um, they want to, I mean, I hate to say it, they want to be entertained, right? Um, but, they want, but, but that's how they receive knowledge and information often as well, is through a lot of different media. And so, uh, so we're really a law firm wrapped up with a PR firm, digital marketing firm, crisis communications, um, uh, and all of that rolled into one. So. And I think I kept you from talking about the military. I asked that question about the schools. And, uh, oh, yeah. yeah. No, so uh, uh, thank you. So our, our, our military, uh, again, fairly self-explanatory. We represent service members. Uh, we represent veterans, uh, military support organizations. We actually represent a... Um, uh, in fact, I just got an email from him this morning before I, I, I came here. Uh, the Northeast POW MIA Network. So Northeast POW MIA Network. It's an organization of veterans who exist. Their mission is to raise awareness for the plight of America's still roughly 500 uh, uh, missing uh, service members who've been declared missing in action, right? or, or are still actually POWs, prisoners of war. Uh, we still have roughly, roughly 500, um, and they want to raise awareness uh, for, for their plight. And one of the things that they do is they have um, a, they place a, and sponsor a POW MIA Remembrance Table. Uh, is everybody familiar with, with that, the, the POW MIA Remembrance Table? Uh, you've probably seen them in military chow halls. You may have seen them in Chick-fil-A's. If you, if you are a frequent patron of Chick-fil-A, usually around Memorial Day or Veterans Day, they'll have one there. Um, and it's a table, and the table is, is, is not, nobody's allowed to sit at the table, and it has a number of elements on the table, and each of the elements has symbolic meaning, and usually there'll be a sheet there that will explain the symbolic meaning of each of the elements on the table, such as the empty glass, the lemon wedge, the salt, um, et cetera, and, and also, there's a Bible, right? And the Bible is not necessarily there to promote Christianity. It's there to uh, symbolically to represent the strength gained through faith, right? Faith in God, faith in country, faith in your fellow service members that, that, the, um, that the POW needs to have in order to survive. And the Northeast POW MIA network put one of these uh, in, a, um, in the Manchester, New Hampshire VA Medical Center. And the Manchester New Hampshire VA Medical Center allowed them to do this um, in the lobby, and they were sued for it. Uh, they were sued by uh, a gentleman who's supported by somebody I'll talk about later, but the, the or his organization is called the Military Religious Freedom Foundation. Um, the name is very misleading. They stand for anything but religious freedom in the military. Uh, the, the guy who heads that organization is called Mikey Weinstein. I'll talk about him a little bit later. but. Um, they sued the VA, and um, so it's kind of an interesting case. So, they, so we represent the organization that owns and sponsors the display, uh, but the VA got sued. So we thought, well, we need to intervene in this lawsuit. And I don't need to get into all the mechanics of how you, know, you intervene in a lawsuit. But basically, we told the judge, well, we have to be in this lawsuit too because whatever the VA decides to do, it's going to affect our client's rights because it's our client's, that's our tape, my client's table, right? And that's my client's Bible that they're trying to get removed. The Bible, by the way, was donated um, for the specific purpose of being displayed here by a, uh, a gentleman by the name of Herc Streitberger. 
Herc was a World War II POW himself. He was a waste gunner on a B-24, shot down on his very last mission. He was shot down, crash landed, he was captured, and he spent time in Stalag Luft Number no. 4 um, and, uh, as a POW, and he actually escaped. And his escape story is, is to me, uh, is like st the stuff that you see in Hollywood films. Um, he was actually, he and a couple of his buddies um, managed to escape, and they got, uh, this was at the very, very end of the war. In fact, uh, uh, Berlin had already fallen, so the, um, if you know anything about your World War II history, you know that the, um, the, uh, the Wehrmacht, the, just the German regular soldiers, they, at this point, they were pretty much done, and they didn't want to fight anymore. They knew that it was a lost cause for them, but they were still just, I think, just kind of doing their duty. Um, the SS were the, were the fanatics and the radicals, but the Wehrmacht were just kind of like, hey, you know, I'm just, I just want to get back home to my wife and kids, right? Well, a Wehrmacht uh, a soldier came upon um, Herc and a couple of his buddies who had, been, uh, who had escaped this POW camp and were trying to get back to friendly lines. So the Vermont soldier, uh, I don't even think he had a weapon with him. I think he just kind of, you know, hey, you know, what are you doing? And, and so Herc, because his name is Streitberger, so he would tell you he's got German uh, ancestry. He spoke a little bit of German. So he was trying to negotiate with this German soldier. And he, um, and he says, hey, uh, you know, please just let us go, you know, the war's over, we're just trying to, you know, we're not trying to kill any Germans or whatever, we just want to get back to our, our unit. And the, and the German was really nervous and didn't want to do it, and Herc negotiated with him and he says, hey buddy, he goes, when's the last time you had some American tobacco and a nice cup of, and a nice cup of coffee? And the German soldier goes, if you give me American tobacco, I'll let you go. So they, they all, you know, uh, and, I, and I always want to know, how do they get American tobacco? Well, the uh, uh, American Red Cross would give these you know, little care packages to when they would visit the, um, the, the POW camps, and that's how they got their rations of, of uh, you know, American tobacco. And so, uh, so that's, how they, that's how they escaped, as they bartered uh, good old North Carolina you know, tobacco for their freedom. Um, uh, who would have thought, right? So, but anyway, Herc donated his, uh, his personal Bible to the Northeast POW MI network, of, which whom, of whom he was a member for a purpose of being displayed on here because he spent time as a POW. He, wanted, he was very supportive of the cause, obviously. Um, anyway, so we're still in litigation in that case. Um, uh, and uh, oh, yeah, the one, last, one other thing about it that's pretty interesting, and it kind of goes to, to this piece right here, right, some of the advocacy work we do. So as I was researching the case and the background and the facts and learning about Herc and his story and all this, uh, I, I also had to research the VA's policy. Like, what does the VA policy say about whether you can have a POW MIA display? And uh, lo and behold, I discovered this would have been, this would have been 2019. Yeah, er, er, early 2019 is when this all went down. I discovered that the VA policy said that uh, each individual facility director has the sole discretion to accept or deny uh, the, 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 the POW-MIA display. And I thought, that's insane, right? How many VA facilities are there worldwide? There's got to be hundreds, right? So you could literally have a hundred different policies, right? I mean, one guy could say, it's like Nero, right? One guy's like, yep, well, I'll allow it. The next guy says, nope, I won't allow it. And I said, that's ridiculous. So I wrote a letter. Um, 
I was trying to generate some publicity off of it and raise awareness for it, but I just thought, you know, uh, I'll write a letter uh, and let's see what happens. So I wrote a letter to the VA secretary at the time, was, was Secretary uh, Wilkie. And I, um, and I basically said to him, I said, your policy is, uh, is insane. I said, Un I, obviously, I, I, I lawyered it up a little bit. You know. <laughs> I'm giving you the Cliff's Notes version. Your policy is insane. Right? It's going to result in ridiculous outcomes where one facility in Iowa could, uh, could allow a POW MIA table, and a facility in New Hampshire doesn't allow it, and a facility in Florida says, gosh, I don't know. And I said, um, you, need to, you need to issue a new directive that says there's one policy for the entire VA, and the buck stops with you. I said, you're the secretary, you're the leader, you should take charge and make one policy across the entire VA. And I sent it, and then obviously we tried to generate some media attention, some congressional interest off of it, blah, 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 because that's what we do. And then like a month later, I get a letter back saying, thank you for your letter. We've taken your, your you know, uh, recommendations under, under consideration. And the secretary has decided he's going to issue a new policy that makes it you know, one policy across the entire VA. So I thought, you know, son of a gun, he's doing, he did it, you know, he, he, he listened to me. So, um, so that's what happened. So we got, ended up getting one, one VA-wide policy that says, yes, you can have religious, religious displays in VA facilities. So uh, is that a question or? A question. Okay. In those situations, does the display come down for the litigation period? Or does nope. The nope. That was a big, big, big part of it was, uh, uh, and usually that's what will happen is the, the, the judge will just kind of freeze everything in time, right? And just say, nothing changes until I make a decision, right? And that's, uh, and that's, that's pretty typical. So, all right. So I've been on this slide for way too long, and I haven't even gotten into, uh, this is how, I, this is how you know, lawyers fill the, fill the hours, right? It's like, man, I, I got. But hopefully this is at least giving you a little bit more about First Liberty. All right. Session one, all right, let's begin. Uh, why religious freedom matters. So, I know Mark wanted me to talk about why religious freedom matters. And here's the thing for me though, and, and I, I remember this vividly, probably five, six years ago, we're sitting in a strategy meeting with our, our leadership at First Liberty. And somebody says the question, you know, we need, to, we need to figure out how we can get people to understand why religious freedom matters. And I remember it just like had this epiphany and I thought, how do we get people to understand the value of religious freedom if they don't even understand the value of religion itself, right? Like why would I care about having the freedom to do something if I don't even think the thing that I have the freedom to do is important, right? It's like, um, you know, why would I want to get a driver's license if I don't think driving is important, right? So. Um, so before we can appreciate the value of religious liberty, I think we first have to appreciate the value that religion itself provides. And, and, and when I think about this, I think about people that I encounter frequently who uh, don't approach that question from a theological perspective because they have no theological framework, right? They, maybe they're agnostic or they're atheist. So appealing to them from sort of the spiritual or theological perspective, they're just like, okay, I, I don't care, right? I don't believe in the Bible, so why would I care that God says it's important? Because I don't believe in God. So I, have to th I had to come up with other ways to appeal to those types of people. And I thought, well, most people I know care about 
and, and or at least will listen to um, sort of economic appeals, right? It affects your pocketbook. And so I did some research. Well, I didn't do, I didn't do some research. I, 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 did, I, just, I was going to do some research and then I discovered that somebody else had already done the work for me. So I'm just borrowing from that person's research. Um, and a guy named Brian Grimm has done a lot of research on this and he reports that religion contributes an estimated 1.2 trillion, that's with a T, annually, annually, every single year, $1.2 trillion to the U.S. economy. Right? That is more than the top 10 tech companies combined. So I looked up Google, Apple, Amazon, Facebook, Microsoft. You combine all of their sort of net uh, economic benefit to the U.S. economy, religion writ large contributes more than all of them combined. All right, so think about that. Um, and then I started to think, are there other ways that religion is important to our nation and to our society? Other uh, sort of non-theological appeals that religion might have? And I'm gonna give us our first video here because this, uh, the late, he just passed away fairly recently, but the late Professor Clay Christensen from Harvard says it much better than I can. And I hope this is teed up properly. It should be. You may have to click twice. Okay. So when you go to the next slide. Sometime ago, I had a conversation with a Marxist economist from China. He was coming to the end of the Fulbright Fellowship here in Boston. But I asked him if he had learned anything that was surprising or unexpected. And without any hesitation, he said, yeah. I had no idea how critical religion is to the functioning of democracy. The reason why democracy works, he said, is not because the government is designed to oversee what everybody does. But rather, democracy works because most people, most of the time, voluntarily choose to obey the law. And in their past, most Americans attended a church or synagogue every week, and they were taught there by people who they respected. My friend went on to say that Americans followed these rules because they had come to believe that they weren't just accountable to society, they were accountable to God. My Chinese friend heightened a vague and nagging concern of Harvard inside that his religion loses its influence over the lives of Americans. What will happen to our democracy? Where are the institutions that are going to teach the next generation of Americans that they too need to voluntarily choose to obey the laws? Because if you take away religion, you can't hire enough police. Clay Christensen, right? That video was made a number of years ago. Boy, how prescient is it now, right? Every, after everything we've seen over the past several years, and with uh, just the unrest in our nation, and what do you say is is is, is a, a Marxist from China recognized the reason why your democracy thrives and is able to function is because people voluntarily understand that they should obey the law because they're not accountable just to the government or just to, to society, but they're ultimately accountable to God. And if you lose that, if you take that away, then as, as 
Professor Christensen said, you can't hire enough police. And I think that's exactly what we're seeing in our country uh, right now. And, and so, I'm sorry. So Mike, how, how would you then uh, define religion? You know, versus, you think in religion in terms of, you know, like maybe some religious institutions and laws, beliefs, but how would you define it broadly to include stuff like, you know, belief in government standards and so on? Uh, how would I define religion broadly? I, I guess it would be any, uh, it's probably a systematic set of beliefs that, uh, that provides a, it, it, by which one lives their life, right? It's, it's a guiding set of principles and values, but it's, uh, it's, it's not just, I mean, that's why I use the word systematic, right? Because it, it, there, there, there are specifics and then there are generals. Um, so, but that's how I would define it very, very broadly. Obviously, you can get much more specific than that, but I mean, in general, um, that's, what I think religion is, and that's why I do believe that um, things like you know secular humanism, uh, it's not a religion in the specific sense, but it's a religion in the broad sense, right? Because it is a guiding set of principles by which certain people decide to live their lives. Um, it's not specific in that it doesn't, you know, it, it it doesn't define the particulars in the way that Christianity might or Judaism might. So, you did that perfectly. Thomas's question, instead of me running around with the microphone since we're recording this, uh, by repeating their question, that's perfect. So if you can keep doing that. Yep, right. absolutely. Thank you. Where am I? Okay. So, the, so that sort of gives us a backdrop then. Hopefully, you'll agree with me then that, that religion even set aside from the theological value that I assume all of us in this room would agree that obviously religion provides, I don't think we'd be here if we didn't agree that it provides us with a, um, a, a, a theological and a spiritual benefit, but hopefully you also agree that there, there's also a societal benefit to it, right? Finan or economically, um, uh, sociologically, and so, um, so if we all agree with the premise that religion provides a value, then what is the value of religious liberty, right? And what was the founder's vision for religious liberty in this country. Um, if you look at other countries, uh, and, and how many here have, have visited, uh, have, have traveled internationally? Almost every single person, all right. How many here have been to what we would generally refer to as a third world country? Okay, so if you've been to those countries and you're like me, when I visit other countries, I'm often fascinated by their history, their culture, right, their traditions. I just, I, I'm like a sponge. I want, I just want to learn as much as I can about those countries because I just think it's, it's, it's fascinating uh, to me. I used to, I, I, I spent uh, four years living in the UK when I was young and I got to travel throughout Europe during that time and perhaps that's what really developed my love of learning about other countries and, and other cultures. But uh, as I grew older, I came to realize that Religious liberty is almost always the first flashpoint uh, in uh, the battle f 
that, that many of those, especially if you're talking about um, uh, communist countries or formerly communist countries, religious liberty was almost always the first flashpoint. Um, you, if you look at um, the former Soviet Union, if you look at China, uh, you'll see that, that uh, those totalitarian regimes, right, why do, they, why do they choose religious liberty as the first area of attack? It's because they recognize that, the, um, that any people or any group of people who say that they submit to an authority higher than the government right, is a threat to the regime. And so that's always the first thing they want to do is, is crush that freedom of thought and freedom of belief. Because if they can do that, then they can begin to control everything else. Um, it, let me see, I'm, make sure I'm not getting, I don't want to get ahead of myself here. Yeah, okay. So, um, so in, in those totalitarian regimes, any group of people who say, um, we submit to a higher authority than the government, the government is going to go after them. Uh, and that's been true in, in almost every one of those, those places. I have another video lined up. But in America, all right, we turn that idea on its head. All right, the, our founders came from a place where that very thing was happening, where people wanted to challenge the established order and the established uh, dictates of the regime, right? And it wasn't a communist regime. They weren't even, it was actually a, a, a theocratic regime that existed in much of Western Europe at that time, and particularly in England. And, they, and the founders came here fleeing from that sort of autocratic um, uh, dictatorship and totalitarianism, and they came here seeking um, the, the freedom to establish their own government, and they built it upon principles that we're gonna talk about here in a minute, but principles upon which our nation was founded that I think, uh, first, we have done a tremendous disservice to ourselves and to our kids as a nation. We don't teach the true understanding and principles upon which our nation was founded to our, to our kids anymore. Um, and, and hopefully the next video will, will, will tee that up nicely. But before we do that, I'll, I'll just tell a quick anecdote. One of the other reasons why, so I told you about what led me to join the Marine Corps. And people say, well, what led you to want to become an attorney? All right, were you one of those kids who, uh, ever since you were, you know, I, one of my colleagues, for example, he always says, uh, I've known I wanted to do this job since I was in the eighth grade. Right? And I just think that's fascinating to me, that he's, he's known for that long, that this is what he wanted to do. People say, well, when did you know you wanted to be an attorney? And I said, about six months before I went to law school. Okay? <laughs> um, and, and it was when I read a book I haven't, read, I haven't read the book since, but I read it about six months before I, I decided that I wanted, or six months before I took the LSAT, right, the, the law school uh, admission test. I, um, uh, I read a book by, and it was by uh, Tim LaHaye. So, you know, the one half of the Left Behind series, right, Tim LaHaye. And uh, he's not a legal scholar, at least not to my knowledge, but he wrote this book called Faith of Our Founders. Um, and I'm sure if I read it today, I would probably cringe, like, oh, I can't believe that this, was, this like, blew my mind. But it blew my mind when I read it, because I was a young, you know, 22-year-old kid who didn't know. And, and I read this book, and, it ta and he talked about the faith of our founders and what drove them 
to create the country that they did and what drove them to write the Constitution that the, the way that they did. And I remember I had these mixed emotions, though. One, I was just blown away and amazed by all of it. And then two, my amazement kind of turned to anger. And I would, maybe not anger, but frustration. I was very frustrated. And I said, how come I didn't know this? You know, why did I not know this? Why was this kept from me, this knowledge about our country and our history? Why? Because I was a product of public schools my entire life. Now, I did, I told you, I spent four years living in the UK. I went to a British school. So we'll, we'll set that for those four years aside. But every other part of my life was, was uh, I grew up in American public schools. And I never once learned about uh, the faith of our founders, right? And, and what they believed and what drove them to create this country. And, uh, and just, so that just really, really frustrated me. So I'm going to show you this next video, and then we'll get into uh, a little bit more uh, of the details. Did I get it? So when I teach a uh, course in American civilization, this is the first thing they read. And it's the first thing they read because it's one of the first things written about or for America. The pilgrims undertook this, this uh, really audacious journey to come to the new world and look for uh, a place that they could call their own, live according to the dictates of their conscience. They were thinking they were going to Virginia, and so they were off course. They were going off course by a storm. Uh, they spent many, many weeks at sea, and their supplies were running low, so they needed to, they needed to land. And one of the reasons that the, the pilgrims left England originally was uh, freedom of worship and their rights to worship gods they saw fit according to the dictates of their conscience. What you had in the Mayflower Compact was a common vision of the good that they were hoping to pursue here together as a community. And they realized that to survive, they had to stick together. We've got really what's the, the first constitutional document in the New World. Uh, and it talks about the importance of living together in a body politic for mutual preservation, for support. They write it down. They write down the rules that they're going to be following. And when they write them down, they write them down with a specific mindset, which is that they are covenanting. They are writing these rules under God. This is the first binding legal document in American history that brings the people together under the rule of law and in a self-ruling system. We are all parts of that. If you live in America under the Constitution, you are connected to that project that they had so many years ago, coming across the Atlantic and starting a new life here in America. So you can see we made that video um, last year, uh, but I think it's still obviously uh, quite applicable today. And so what was, um, oops, I got ahead one slide. That's all right. I can leave that up there. So what was the founder's vision, right? Um, and you can see that, that they, they took the old world notion that your rights come from the government. And, and, and to, even today, right, I, I, I meet people from China. I was in China not too long ago. And if you ask them, um, do you have the right to do X, right, whatever it might be, and if they say yes or no, whatever the answer is, 
it's, it, try this little experiment, right? If you meet somebody from China or from uh, another one of these countries that, that has sort of this, this rigid regime like that, and ask them, how do you know that, that's, that you have the right to do that? Like who, who you know, how do you, how do you know that you have the right to say, you know, speak freely on the internet or whatever? And they will almost inevitably tell you because that's what the government said, right? The government told me. And, and, and that's not unique to China. It's not unique to China post Mao, right? That's been that way for hundreds of years, for centuries in many countries, including England, where many of our founders came from. And they said, well, because that's what the crown says, right? That's what the Church of England says. And uh, they came and they turned that all on its head and said, no, 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 no. The purpose of the American government, right, at the American government as we knew it at that time, is not to declare what our rights are or to decide what our rights are. The purpose of government is to recognize rights that pre-exist government, right? Rights that come from God and the purpose of government is to recognize the rights and protect those rights. And if you read the Declaration of Independence, it tells you very clearly, when the government stops being able to do that, it's the right and the obligation of the people to say, you're not, you're not fulfilling your half of the deal anymore, government. You know, it, it's, it's, it's time for a change. And I'm not, you know, please hear me correctly, I'm not advocating violent overthrow of the government or anything like that, I, I, I'm simply, I'm underscoring the principles upon which our nation was founded. Uh, and when, when we talk about, so let's get a little bit more into uh, religious freedom and those principles, right? The, the founder's vision for free exercise and establishment. So now it's time for a little bit of a pop quiz, okay? Um, when the First Amendment was drafted, all right, and there's a reason why. So our organization is called First Liberty Institute. We used to be called Liberty Institute. We became First Liberty Institute because we wanted to underscore first. It is our first freedom. Why is it our first freedom? Because it's the first clause in the First Amendment to the Constitution. They're the first freedoms outlined in the Bill of Rights. Free exercise, right, uh, of religion, and the Establishment Clause. So who here can, can, can does anybody can actually, actually like repeat verbatim uh, the, what the Free Exercise and Establishment Clause say? Anybody know? Congress shall create no law respecting the establishment of religion nor prohibiting the free exercise thereof, right? So we call those the religion clauses. Um, the free exercise clause everybody gets, right? Like, nor prohibiting the free exercise thereof. We have the free exercise of religion. I want to point something out though. Does it say the right to worship? Does it say the right to attend services? No. What does it say? Free exercise. What does that word exercise mean? All right. I, I'm a Marine, so I enjoy PT. Okay. Um, uh, does me sitting on my couch playing video games and thinking about being healthy, does that get me healthy? No. What do I have to do? I actually have to do it. Right? I have to exercise. If I want a muscle to grow, I must exercise that muscle. If I want my brain to get smarter, I must exercise my brain. There's a reason why we use that word exercise in the First Amendment. It implies doing something, right? That you will actually get up and do something. So it's the free exercise of religion. Now, that's the one most people conceptually can get. 
Let's go to the Establishment Clause. All right. This is the one where we've had a lot of trouble over the last 50 to 75 years in this country. And that's because we've lost an appropriate under historical understanding of what the founders intended when we talk about the Establishment Clause. Um, at the time of the founding, we had how many colonies? Okay, all right, so far so good. So 13 colonies, okay? Um, if you were a, all right, I'll start, with, I'll start with an easy one. If you were a Quaker during the colonial period, where would you probably live? Pennsylvania. If you were a um, uh, Catholic, Maryland. If you were uh, Anglican, Virginia. Virginia, right, and so on and so forth. If you were, uh, if you rejected uh, what the people in the Massachusetts Bay Colony were were uh, teaching, and you were, you know, considered a heretic, and you broke away, uh, where would you probably have gone? Uh, <laughs> Rhode Island, right. Rhode Island with a guy named Roger Williams, who they declared as a heretic because he kind of so, right? And it was actually called the Rhode Island Plantation at the time, all right? So, so when, the, so that was the that was the framework and the context and the backdrop uh, at the time of the founding, right? And so when the first Congress wrote, when they got together to write the First Amendment, all right, you have to understand their framework. We had a we had very strong colonial identities. As we just right indicated, right everybody even today re remembers, yeah, you know the Quakers were in Pennsylvania, the Catholics were in Maryland. So what did they not want? They did not want a super strong federal government to come in and dictate one for all, because that's what they already—that's what they just left in England. They had just left that in England and the rest of of Europe. So they they did not want the federal government to sit down and vote and decide from here and henceforth. The United, these United States shall be a Catholic nation, right? Everybody in Maryland would have been hooping and hollering. Um, everybody else would have been really, really mad, and we probably wouldn't have lasted more than 10 years as a nation, right? Or they didn't want the United States to be declared as a Quaker nation or as a whatever, right? So, what, so the intent behind the Establishment Clause was to simply prevent there from being a national religion, one national religion. That was what they meant by the establishment of religion. But in the ind individual colonies, could you have established religion? Absolutely. Go back and read some of the original constitutions of the colonies, and they'll tell you. Right? The, church, the, the official church of this colony shall be, and then whatever it happened to be. Um, so you absolutely had that. So when did all that change? Anybody, know, anybody want to venture a guess when a lot of that changed? 1960s. Before that, a little bit before that. It was early 20th century. All right? it, was, it was shortly after the passage of the 14th Amendment, all right? which had a completely different purpose. But, what the, but one of the things that the 14th Amendment did later on was it, it, it took the Bill of Rights and it took it from applying only at the federal level and it applied it to the states. And we had this thing called the Doctrine of Incorporation that the Supreme Court issued, right? So it's all done through judicial fiat. And he basically said that the, the Bill of Rights are now incorporated to the states. 
And I'm somewhat oversimplifying it, but that's the gist of what happened. So this is a relatively recent phenomenon in our nation's history that, that you took what was in originally intended to only apply at the federal level, and it, then it said, no, no, it applies at the state, the county, municipal, you know, town, all the way on down, even down to like school boards now, right? And so, um, so that's, that, that's the fundamental misunderstanding that most people have of the Establishment Clause in the country today. And I guarantee you, if you go back to your, your home, you know, your bases, your hometowns, your churches, or wherever, and you sit down, you have coffee with somebody, and you start talking about the Establishment Clause, and you bring this up, they're going to, at least one person in here is going to get the crazy eye from somebody for saying that, right? They're, people are going to think, what? That's, no, the Establishment Clause is meant to keep prayer out of schools, right? It's like, you know, and, and that's what people believe, because that's, again, like me, I was taught that growing up. And it wasn't until I began, and, and, it, and it wasn't Tim LaHaye and his, I mean, it was, it, that was simply the vehicle that God used to bring the truth to me. Because what did I do when I read that book? I thought, I have never read the Constitution. I have never read the Declaration of Independence. I've never read the Mayflower Compact. Right? I've never, has anybody here ever heard of the Northwest Ordinance? Right. You should read the Northwest Ordinance, too. Uh, it's another one of our founding documents uh, in this country. And so uh, I'd never read any of those founding documents to like, just see for myself, what did they actually say? What did our founders, read the Federalist Papers, right? These are all, and, and nobody writes like we wrote back then. I, I love reading the Declaration of Independence. I make my kids read it. I know, typical homeschool dad, right? You're going to read the Declaration of Independence, right? Uh, but that's, you know, uh, because it, it's beautiful. It's written beautifully, and it makes so much sense when you read it. Um, so, all right. You're probably wondering, why do I have the Truman Report up here? Nobody's even heard of the Truman Report. I found this little gem one time when I was doing research for uh, uh, testimony that I had to provide to, uh, to Congress. They wanted to know about, well, what about the history of religion and religious freedom in the military? And, uh, and I, was, I wanted to provide them with a little bit of what I just explained to you, so kind of a crash course on the founding and founding principles and why we need to, be, why we need to stay true to those. And, and then I kept digging and digging and digging, and then I found, so on the tail end of World War II, um, our military was downsizing rapidly, right? We had plussed up. I mean, we were we had just ballooned into this massive army or massive, you know, army, navy, air force, marines uh, uh, during World War II, and then and now we're like, oh, the war's over, like shrink, 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 and they were looking. Everything was on the chopping block, and one of the things they wanted to cut was the chaplain corps. They wanted to get rid of chaplains because they thought, well, we got you know. We don't, we don't need chaplains, right? Um, um, so President Truman, who was no, he was no uh, religious zealot, all right? If you know anything about Truman, he was not a religious zealot. But he said, you know, he did what any great bureaucrat would do. Maybe we ought to have a commission study it and give me a report, right? That's what every great bureaucrat does. You form a commission, and then you get a report. Um, and that's what he did. So this commission... Uh, studied the, the chaplaincy and the value that the chaplaincy provides to the military. And I realize we have non-military military chaplains here, but I just think this report and this excerpt from the report is such an, a powerful and eloquent 
description of what everything that I'm trying to, to, to tell you all here this morning. And I know you can see it up there, but I'm going to read it anyway because I, I, re I read it every chance I get because it's so good. It says, one of the, f in fact, I only have a portion of it. I've got the whole thing, uh, the, a longer version here. One of the fundamental differences dividing this world today lies in the field of ideas. On one side of the world to which we belong holds, the idea, holds to the idea of a moral law. Go Remember that, that Clay Christensen video? Holds to the idea of a moral law which is based on religious convictions and teachings. The fundamental principles which give our democratic ideas their intellectual and emotional vigor are rooted in the religions which most of us have been taught. Our religious convictions continue to give our democratic faith a very large measure of its strength. The other side of the conflict has organized its idea upon a rejection of moral law and individual dignity that is utterly repugnant to any of our religions. Indeed, it has been necessary for the totalitarians to attack and stifle religion because such faith represents the antithesis of everything they teach. Right? That's what we've been talking about the whole morning. It follows, therefore, that if we expect our armed forces to be physically prepared, we must also expect them to be ideologically prepared. A program of adequate religious opportunities for service personnel provides an essential way for strengthening their fundamental beliefs in democracy and therefore strengthening their effectiveness as an instrument of our democratic form of government. So what the Truman Commission was essentially saying is we have to have chaplains because chaplains ensure that our troops, right? What's the role of the chaplains, right? To bring the soldier to God and God to the soldier. Um, at least that's, you know, uh, uh, sort of a, uh, uh, the catch for it, the cliche version of, of, of what I've always been told. Um, we have to have chaplains because the chaplains ensure that our troops continue to understand right, why we fight and, wh and, and why our nation exists. And without that, we're, we're no different than, right? And think about this, Truman administration. World War II has just ended. What is now the emerging threat in the world? Communism, right? right? So that, that's the giant, the red scare that is, go, that is looming large in, in the national scene at this time. And, and this commission is saying, if we're gonna be able to fight communism, it's not just a battle of flesh and blood, it's a battle for ideas. It's a battle of values, right? And all I can say is, you know, history has a strange way of repeating itself, right? It's very cyclical because we seem to be sort of in that same thing again. So last couple of things, and then we'll, we'll, we'll pause for a break because I could really use some coffee. Um, how did we get from there, the Mayflower Compact, what the founder's vision was, even as recently as the Truman administration? How did we get from there to here? Well, I have a few pet theories, okay? So this is just where I just sort of kind of step on my own soapbox. And these are my pet theories, right? I believe that what really led us to this point, it didn't start in the 20th century. It started long before that. It started with the modern enlightenment and the industrial revolution. Um, and my, my theory is as follows. And, and, and it's loosely based on a lot of reading and research that I've done and, and, and things like that. But um, so the Industrial Revolution was really uh, when we saw some of the most accelerated advances in technology, in medicine, in exploration, in science, et cetera, in, in human history, okay? Um, 
And it was sort of the, it, it, it's just like pouring gasoline on the fire of, of, of history. And we just saw it just kind of go on this, on this uh, exponential curve of, of advances. And that's all good. There's obviously a lot of good that comes out of that. I live in Texas. I can tell you, the, who, William Carrier, who invented the air conditioner, I think he needs to be on Mount Rushmore, all right? Because uh, you talk, look at the population distribution of the country, I guarantee you it would look a whole lot different without air conditioning, okay? Um, but the problem with the Industrial Revolution, as much as we appreciate all the advances that we had, uh, was that it, it began to feed into this, the Bible tells, talk, tells us about it all the time, right? This normal human desire for man to replace God with man, right? We don't need God anymore. Why? We've got all the answers. It's like uh, Bob the Builder, and we can fix it, you know? We can fix it. Man holds all the answers to life's mysteries. We can prolong life. We can defeat death with science and med medical advances. We can travel farther and faster than we ever have before with scientific and technological advances. Right? All these things, and it kept feeding into man's fleshly desire to be able to say, we, we don't need God because we are man. We're so brilliant. We held all the answers ourselves. And I really think that that's what started us on this path of rejecting God, um, which is a normal human tendency that just happens over and over again throughout history. Um, I'll give you another example more recently. I just read an article a couple weeks ago in The Atlantic magazine. Um, and I don't usually make a habit of reading The Atlantic, just for any of those who are worried about my, my reading habits, because it's, it's a very, very far left-leaning publication. But their religion beat author is Emma Green, who's pretty, usually pretty good. And so I try to read Emma Green's articles. She had an article, um, and, and by the Atlantic standards, she's a crazy right-wing nut job. By our standards, she's just sort of just barely right of center, okay? Um, uh, and she had an article about, um, I'm trying to remember the name of it. it, was, it the name was pretty close to this. Uh, the more liberal you are, the more likely you are to reject science when it comes to COVID, right? Which I just thought was the most provocative title. I was like, oh, I got to read this, right? And her premise was that, uh, or based on her own you know, uh, research and investigation, was that the more liberal somebody was, the more likely, and because she'd found these enclaves in, in New York City and Boston and elsewhere where uh, these uber-liberal enclaves where people were still demanding quarantines, uh, lockdowns, distancing, triple masking, you know, and just, no, we should not, I mean, people should not be, you know, out and living and doing stuff. It's like, I can't believe stores are open. I can't believe, you know. And, and, and she would interview them, and they would just say, because it's not safe. It's just not, she'd say, well, you know, what about the CDC has now said, oh, it's just, it's, and they would literally just ignore, I don't care what the CDC says. It's like, well, wait a minute, but a year ago you were saying, listen to what the CDC is saying, it's not safe to, and, yeah, but, you know, well, now they're wrong. And so, and she was, she was pointing out this weird thing where just, it was, they're now the ones that are saying, I, I don't care what the science says, it's not safe. Right? And I was reading this and I thought, and, and she didn't draw this conclusion, I did. I thought, why is that? Thought, well, here's my theory, right? The more liberal a person is, this is not always true, but the more liberal a person is, the more likely they are, um, just statistically speaking, the more likely they are to 
probably not believe in God, to probably not, and to reject the idea of, of, of life after death, right? Of, of you know, uh, eternal salvation or damnation or just, you know, the afterlife. And so they really believe that this life is the one and only life that they have. And they have to protect it at all costs. They have to prolong it and protect it at all costs, right? And that is really an offshoot of the Industrial Revolution and modern Enlightenment thinking, right? Is that, again, there is no God. It's just us. It's just this. And we have the ability to prolong life as far as we can, and so we should. Uh, and, I, and I was talking to my wife about this. And my wife, who's you know, way smarter than I'll ever be, she says, right. She goes, but the purpose of life isn't to not die. It's to live, right? Uh, and I thought that was very wise from my wife. And the last little anecdote, just data point I'll point out too, again, sort of, again, another just sort of how did we get from there to here and sort of this modern enlightened thinking that we have. I've also, because I do a lot of traveling for work, I've been to a lot of different places in this country, and I've always found it very interesting that, um, again, not always true, but the more, the most beautiful places in the country, just aesthetically speaking, the most beautiful, I mean, Memphis is great, trust me, it's, it's great, but the most beautiful places in the country that I've been to are, you know, they are hotbeds of uber liberalism. And I don't mean that, and it, with that I love Texas, I'm a Texan, all right? Um, but I, as a kid, I grew up in Northern California and I used to go to San Francisco every weekend, and San Francisco is still one of my favorite cities on the planet. I just love San Francisco. It's so beautiful. Uh, it's fallen on some rough times recently, but it's still a beautiful city uh, physically. I mean, San Diego, right? I spent a lot of time in the Pacific Northwest. Portland, it's gorgeous. Seattle, it's gorgeous. Boulder, Colorado. Um, you go out to Cape Cod, right? Uh, Massachusetts, it's, uh, you know, Key West. But every single one of those places I've named, Right? They are, like, not to make this political, but just to drive the point home, as deep, solid blue as you will ever get, okay? Um, and I thought about that. Why is that? You know? How come the good old conservatives or whatever, you know, are stuck with, you know, and we're in Mississippi and, you know, <laughs> and, you know and, and West Texas. Come on, you know? And I, I thought, because... It's like, because they don't believe in heaven, so they're trying to create heaven on earth. And once again, just the Bible warns us about this, right? That just man will always try to seek his own. Um, and we have to really, uh, I don't really have any other answer for how did we get here than, than that. It's a, it's a theological problem. That is what led us to this point. So the last two things I'll say, or the no, last thing I'll say, because uh, in session two, we're going to discuss current threats to religious liberty and what we can do. Um, but uh, I really encourage all of you, if you haven't, I, I, don't have, I don't get any royalties or anything. I'm just making this plug because I read it and I thought it was a great book and it does a really good job. It helped me a lot to, to, to understand a lot. If you have not yet read Live Not By Lies by Rod Dreher, um, it is an excellent, excellent book at laying out sort of the, the bigger problem, right? I mean, I'm just talking about one specific aspect of the problem, but Live Not By Lies, I think the subtitle is A Manifesto for Christian Dissidents. 
So, and that's basically what it is. He, he lays out a manifesto for if you are a Christian, um, uh, you know, this, this world is, to quote Johnny Cash, this world's rough. So. <laughs> Mike, what's the author? Rod Dreher, D-R-E-H-E-R. -E 